Welcome to Talk Mental Health with Logan Noon. This is episode 28. I have on my great friend, Will Taylor. I crossed paths with Will Taylor, oh, way back in 2012. He ended up being my mental health public speaking coach. He really kind of ended up shaping my career and led me to be a medical student and now a podcaster. So we've really developed a great friendship over the years. I really think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation. And thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah, man. What do you think of this beautiful stash? I think it's amazing. Yeah, it dude. Very professional. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I do not feel very professional. Um, a few weeks ago, it was much longer and bushier, and I could kind of like curl it up a little bit. And yeah. the, the wife just laid down the hammer. She's like, I will leave you. She's like, you have to tame that bad boy in. At least make it look like a normal's mustache. <laughs> uh... Now, throughout your years, did you ever have a stash? When my nephew was here in, in March, I tried to grow a beard. It was a pathetic attempt. I just looked, you know, scruffy and hopeless. <laughs> Dude, I well, I wish I could have seen it. Well, I miss you, man. I, I can't even remember the last time we hung out. It must have been five years ago, six years ago. Seriously? Okay. I mean, I think it's 2018, and I moved out of Sacramento in, like, 2014. Was it? No, it was a little later than that. I don't know. 15? I get my dates all mixed up. It's been a while. Been, yeah, it has been. Yeah. I've been out of the game, so I'm just yeah. slowly starting to get back into mental health advocacy. Yeah, man. Well, I think kind of one of the best places to really start this podcast off is explaining to the listeners like how me and you got connected, how we became good friends, um, and like where we met. So do you remember where we met? Uh <laughs> I believe we met through the balance, not balanced, wasn't it? The uh, group. So, yeah, we, I think, met at, it was balanced support group in Roseville. Yeah, it was a meetup group that yeah. Dara and Jacob put together um, for people with bipolar to kind of connect and provide peer support for each other. Yeah. And it was a great it was a great casual environment. There was no therapy. There was no like professional talk. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was about peer support and it was a great way to use humor and empathy to really connect with people. Yeah. It was, I remember it was just at like a little coffee shop right next to where I worked. And <laughs> for months I knew about that, uh, support group, but I, I didn't go. It was one of those things, like, it, I still just was so intimidated by it. I don't know why, but it was really the push of my roommates that kind of eventually was like, dude, why don't you just go? Like, you might as well learn something. I bet you'll meet some cool people. And I remember, lo and behold, I did. That first meeting, it was like you and uh, the two other Wills. And I remember we were just laughing, having a good time, you know, like making jokes about what life was like being in a psych ward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, peer support's key. Because otherwise, with a mental health diagnosis, you feel very isolated and alone. You feel like you're the only person who's ever had these experiences. And when you meet people who've had them, you, you, it normalizes it, but also you find a lot of the humor in it. Yeah. I mean, we do ridiculous things when we're symptomatic. Yes. Yes, that certainly. only people who, who have lived the experience can really get. Well, so what I remember, one one word that I think me and you have, have talked about over the years is the word crazy. 
and how I sometimes will describe <laughs> myself as crazy, and I and I get people that are like, uh, I thought I thought you weren't supposed to use that word to de- to describe yourself, and I'm like, well, it's just a word, and I was like, it's it's the a- the actions that I did were really crazy, you know, like I thought people were following me around, I was up for five days in a row, I was hearing voices in my head telling me to like start a website start this new company and like harass all these investors and i it, like i i try to almost normalize the word crazy and i in a sense in a sense like like the fact that i'm quote unquote crazy like i don't view it as necessarily a negative connotation so what do you think of using the word crazy oh my god i'm putting you on the Language. spot here bright and early yeah they are well, i've had a lot of coffee at some point it'll kick in yeah um I mean, we can reclaim the term crazy. I mean, people, I work for a cross-disability organization, and people throw the word around really easily, mm-hmm. which in the past would really bother me, um, because the word has a lot of stigma. It means disorganized. It means erratic. It means unpredictable. It means um, dangerous in a lot of contexts. Yeah. For us to use it, it's um, it kind of takes that sting out. Yeah. I mean, I'm not as I'm not as militant about it as I used to be. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> well, I guess let's. Uh, how I like to normally lay out these podcasts. Well, have you had a chance to listen to any of the podcasts? I have not. Okay, so, so what, I have no idea what we're doing today. Yeah, I mean, well, this is essentially it. We're just gonna have a good old time chilling. Um, I'll get into your story and then kind of talk about just like advice that someone who you know maybe was in our position 10 years prior like just kind of diagnosed doesn't really know what the hell they're getting themselves into with this new bipolar diagnosis and like what things we could have benefited from when we were initially diagnosed if we heard you know someone with experience of bipolar disorder and you want to do all this first thing on a Saturday morning. All uh-huh. right, thank you. <laughs> yep. So yeah, man, it's been a blast. So I think what the listeners would benefit the most from is just kind of like, when did when did your mental health challenges start for you? I know you have kind oh, of a God. wild story, but yeah, I had the onset of my symptoms, um, my bipolar symptoms. We'll start there when I was about twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, I started experiencing distortions in perception, um, some confused thinking, some bursts of anger, um, and it, I became very isolated from my friends because I was afraid that they'd notice that there mm-hmm. was something wrong with me. And I was terrified of being locked up, so I kept it a secret from my family. Yeah. Um, as time went on, as I became a teenager, the 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 main presenting symptom was depression okay i mean i was hallucinating and hearing things but i really didn't clue anyone into those but i couldn't hide the depression yeah and it at on two different occasions my dad asked me if i'd like to see a psychiatrist which was terrifying the thought of yeah you know because i was i was sure that they would hear what i had to say and immediately turn around and clap me (laughs) and run take me away (laughs) (laughs) so i turned him down um my father was a physician, so one day he came home, and I was sitting on the couch, and he literally threw a bottle of Prozac at me from across wow. the room. He said, take one of these every morning. And I had no 
I was given no choice over the matter. I wasn't given and any instructions. And how old were you at this point? I was 17. So I was given no information about the drug or side effects or anything. He just expected obedience. Mm-hmm. So I took it um, for a week or two, and I started getting more and more suicidal. Wow. And he he told me to double the dosage. And I tried, and my symptoms got worse. I became more suicidal. This could, I discontinued without telling him. Yeah. And, like, so at that point, were you, like, throwing pills in the toilet or something just to, like, make it look like you were taking the pills or something? Oh, he he wasn't counting them. I didn't have that kind of – he okay. wasn't involved as a parent. Oh, throwing okay. a bottle of pills was his way of, of feeling like he'd, he'd intervened. Oh, okay. He'd actually check on me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was uh, I'm a survivor of benign neglect. Yeah. There was no malice behind it. They just didn't pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. Well, damn, man. I'm sorry you had to go through that. But so, and where were you guys living? I guess at at this point. We were in Southern California, in Ontario. Okay. okay. So about 40 miles east of Los Angeles. Okay. And so, did your symptoms? I guess you know you. Obviously, weren't taking the pills, weren't having a good reaction to that antidepressant at that time. Like, did your symptoms just continue to progress and get worse, or did they kind of, oh, yeah. at any point of your life, did they ever like completely diminish and go away and then come back surging like full force? Um, when I was seventeen, the dial went up to eleven. Okay. Um, and I'm, it's pot, it's a very possible. I started dabbling in psychedelics. Yeah. So I, I. Used, I took LSD on like five different occasions, and that mm. probably was a huge trigger yeah. to make my psychotic symptoms worse. Um, I also started dabbling in pot, and um, my symptoms became very bad. I moved away to college when I was 19, and there was a, a counseling program on campus, marriage and family therapy program, and I started seeing one of the student counselors who was getting her hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I was offered 10 sessions and during, during the course of our treatment, I switched, um, and another personality emerged and it freaked me out and freaked her out. And I was, I was, I, I was diagnosed with, um, uh, dissociative identity disorder. Um, and I was never actually evaluated by a psychiatrist. Um, they felt that my my mental health symptoms were all related to trauma. Oh, okay. So, so the trauma symptoms were what they they felt were presenting, not any kind of or, organic mental illness that could be treated with medication. Oh, okay. And I feel it was it was really irresponsible of them not to have me evaluated at that period. Yeah. Because I was I was profoundly suicidal, and some medication intervention then could have really saved me a lot of pain and suffering. Oh, so the, and they didn't even think there was any medical intervention that they could do just because there was a trauma. They were like, ah, well, you know, he's broken or whatever. Yeah, there was nothing offered. Yeah. And I was too sick to, to even know that, that that was an avenue I should pursue. Yeah. I was I was living in an alternate reality of, of psychosis. I was I was walking through the regular world, but I was seeing something completely different. And my my reaction and my interpretation of other people's motives and behavior was way off base. Mm-hmm. I was living with a, a projection. 
Yeah. What I what I saw the world as was very different. So were you it was a nightmare? Were you having those sort of hallucinations and that uh, you know kind of filter as you described it before the LSD, or was it you think that the LSD just triggered and almost like snapped something in your brain? Like what was your experience? Mm. The onset was puberty. Okay. That was the trigger. Um, I think the LSD made it worse. Okay. Um, but I don't, at this point, I think as, as adolescence progressed, I think it, my, my illness was going to get worse anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, LSD may have been a, may have been a, a factor, like a, an aggravating factor, but yeah. I don't, it continued to get worse. Um, when I was in my early twenties, I started using pot regularly every mm -hmm. week. And my psychotic symptoms went through the roof. Wow. Um, I was ha I was having voices shout at me that I was garbage, like every day. Mm -hmm. I was I lost a job because I was talking to myself, trying to silence the the, the voices. Um, they'd be shouting at me, and I would verbally say stop. Wow. And for a millisecond, that in they would be interrupted, and then okay. they'd go right back to shouting at me. Yeah. And my coworkers were legitimately freaked out by this behavior yeah i imagine so my, yeah my boss fired me oh geez that's yeah oh, i can hold down a job at this point okay and so this is now this is like young 22 ish like what how old were yeah, you i guess 22 to 24 okay and then I guess because I, cause I know you so well, what I think about is like, how did your experience, um, you know, being a homosexual person intertwine in this? Like, when did you actually start, when did you come out about that, your sexuality? And like, how did that make any of these symptoms potentially worse and these experiences worse or better? Right, I don't so know. I came out to myself right before I turned 20. Um, okay. Um, because I'm a sexual assault survivor. Okay. Um, and was that the trauma it, you were referring to earlier? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, being a gay man was not something I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. um, I was assaulted by men and plural. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to be attracted to men too. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the way I'm wired. And yeah. After trying, trying other alternatives, like dating girls and whatnot, I just came to the realization that I'm gay, and I'll, I'll make the life I want to. You know, that wasn't going to let it hold me back, and it wasn't going to let it limit me. So do um, you think if you didn't experience that trauma, your um, acceptance of, of being homosexual would have been different? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, granted, the 80s were a hell of a time to, to be a gay man in this country. Uh -huh. um, gay men were dropping like flies because of AIDS. There was a lot of stigma. I mean, in mainstream movies, they were throwing around the word faggot like it was popcorn. Yeah. You know, it was it was a scary time. Um, I was living up in Oregon um, when I came out, and there was a ballot measure. It was a proposition on the, the fall ballot to basically prevent the state from from endorsing, facilitating, or or promoting homosexuality that was going to that was going to result in in library books being censored and teachers being fired and uh, during the the campaign for the for the ballot proposition um three people were murdered they were fired oh my in God. their house 
it was a really hostile place to live. Um, and after we beat the proposition, I moved to San Francisco. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Bit. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> God damn. Oregon, Oregon has a is split between very progressive areas, and very rural, very conservative areas. Yeah, that's what and I'm kind of realizing. Oh, go ahead, Will. Well, I had things thrown at me. Um, you know, the frat boys threw like frisbees at me when I walked by in my AIDS t-shirt, my act up t-shirt, and oh, okay. I had like rednecks throwing snowballs at me and my partner when we were on the street holding hands you know oh my god that sounds horrific it was yeah. a friend of mine who was a campaign organizer had a brick put through his window wow with a threatening message so i couldn't get out of there fast enough i had just come out and all i wanted to do was you know chase guys yeah and and, and simultaneously you were dealing with kind of like a psychosis yeah, right? I was flat out psychotic. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. I had learned to I'd learned to triangulate my reality. Okay. You know, I I knew that what I wasn't that what I was experiencing wasn't entirely real. So I was doing reality checking with my friends. I was um, I call it triangulating. I was comparing different people's experience of reality with mine mm-hmm. and trying to trying to chart kind of a middle course between what was real and what I was experiencing. Yeah, it was a lot of work, you know, yeah. it's a lot of brain processing power to try and just navigate the world when you're hallucinating. And so I guess in, you know, that era, it was 1980, whatever. Did well, you 91? OK, well, did you have colleagues, you know, friends or even lovers that were encouraging you to seek out any sort of mental health care, like a therapist or, a, you know, actually a physician or at that stage, you know, when Logan Noon over here was two years old in 1991, <laughs> just like what kind of world was it? Or were, was the stigma just so much worse than it is right now where that was not even something anyone would have suggested? It was something no one suggested. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was seeing the counselor at the school at the University of Oregon, and I felt like I was taking care of what I should be doing, you mm-hmm. know, by seeking to help voluntarily. But there was no medical intervention that was never suggested to me. Okay. My friends, my friends, um, were very caring and kind of looked after me. Mm-hmm. They'd feed me when I wasn't eating. Um, they just were very tolerant of my behaviors and um, very, very um, nurturing. Okay. They saw me suffering and didn't know how to help me. Is the short answer. Yeah. And, but so you didn't have a diagnosis at this point. No, um, I but, was I was I had the onset of my symptoms at twelve, and I was diagnosed when I was thirty-two. Okay, okay, wow, dude. Well, that is it, it's kind of hard for me to imagine uh, just that era and those experiences, you know, because I, I of course am a straight man, so I never yeah. had to deal with any kind of uh, that horrible discrimination but then also like the the stigma seems bad to me now but it must be like night and day compared to what it used to be back in 1991 oh yeah i mean i'm walking around that's all good uh, um my understanding of mental illness was one flew over the cuckoo's nest you know you're familiar with the movie a little bit all right so it takes place in a mental hospital, and there's a, a character who's basically a career criminal, played by Jack Nicholson, 
who defies the head nurse of the institution, and they they punish him with electroshock treatment. And then when he doesn't buckle down, they lobotomize him. Wow. And that was my impression of mental hospitals. Yeah. Because they were punitive and they would murder you. Yeah. So I was terrified of getting treatment. Um, so how did you go, though, from, you know, that however old, the 23, 24-year-old Will, uh, who's dealing with all this crazy stuff, living in San Francisco in the 80s, which must have been fucking insane. 90s. Nah, nice. Sorry, I keep saying 80s, but either way. Um, not that old. I know, I know. You look great, Will. You look great. Um, but so how did you go from where you were then to eventually getting into some means of care? All right, so I persisted. Um, I was able to get a job in 1999 that I could do. It was basically editing phone books. Mm -hmm. There were tariff guidebooks, lists, lists of tax rates or um, import tariff goods, you know, import goods. Mm -hmm. Um, I could put on my headphones, and no matter how severe my symptoms were, I was able to do the work. Um, if I was hallucinating or having intrusive visions of trauma, I could I would stop what I was doing, process the feeling or the vision, catch my breath, and then go back to the work. And everyone was involved. Everyone had their headphones on and were doing their own work, so I didn't stick out in that context. Yeah. Um, I started having a lot of paranoid delusions of being persecuted, people photographing me with their cell phones, following me around, um, downloading my journals and writings from my computer, and generally just persecuting me. I felt like everywhere I went, people were staring at me. Mm -hmm. And the symptoms got worse and worse, and the anxiety got worse and worse. And um, I wound up taking a family medical leave. Um, and I... I filled out the paperwork at work on Monday, and the following Sunday I was in handcuffs. Oh, whoa! I had a you know complete yeah, I had a complete psychotic break over the weekend, the following weekend. Okay. And um, basically, I'd had all these vision. I I'd asked my sister-in-law to come from the East Coast to, mm -hmm. to babysit me, basically, and she missed her plane. So I walked around San Francisco International Airport all all night waiting for her, thinking she'd been kidnapped. Wow. And they finally sent me home. Um, and that night I had, you know, basically ego death. I was mm -hmm. having all these hallucinations of being like a an alien scientist from Mars and having, yeah. having lost everything, you know, in a cataclysmic planetary, in, in, you know, chaos. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I um, in the middle of the night, I just I let go. I decided that I'd had enough of this life, and I I let out a breath and and passed away. Wow. And when I when I finally breathed back in, I was someone else, um, and I had no conscious memory of my life as William Taylor. Um, they they call it dissociative amnesia. That yeah. Symptom. Wow, so, that is crazy. And, and did you, like if, like earlier, did you come back as a different personality after that experience? Or did you eventually kind of snap out of it? Or I guess I'm interrupting kind of the story. Yeah, well. <laughs> Shut so, up, Logan. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm someone else, right? I'm, I have no identity. I have no memory. And 
I don't know if you've had this experience, but during the manic episode, I was I was overheating. My body was so hot that I took off all my clothes. And I'm walking around my apartment narrating the story to the air. I felt like I had a radio. I was on the radio and I was addressing mm-hmm. you know, the universe, basically. So at one point, I was hallucinating these. When I was in the airport, there were four voices talking to me, giving me directions as I'm walking around. And so back in my apartment the next day, I listen, and one of the voices says, your apartment's ready. And I say, which one? And they say, one. Well, they didn't say anything, actually. They said, your apartment's ready. And I assumed it was apartment 10. Mm-hmm. So I go upstairs to number 10, you know, not even noticing that I'm not wearing clothes. And I knock on the door, and a voice says, not yet. So that kind of puzzled me. And I went back downstairs, and I'm standing in my doorway, and I realized, no, it's apartment one that I belong in. So I walked downstairs and knocked on the door. And the woman who lived there was an African-American woman in her Mm mid-50s. And she wasn't putting up with crap from some naked white boy. (laughs) So she she went in her apartment and got got a a plastic pole, like an extender on a vacuum cleaner, and started beating me with it. Yeah, yeah. But she slammed the door in my face, and I went back upstairs and forgot all about the the interaction. Mm Mm-hmm. I was laying in my bed hearing voices, and I hear this pounding on the door. And I get up, and there's three people standing at the door across from my apartment. And I, I thrown my glasses away, so I, and I'm nearsighted, so I was having trouble seeing them. But I opened my door a crack and asked if I could help them. And the three of them turned, and there was like the hatred, and the hatred coming off of them was like cheap cologne. Mm overwhelming it knocked me back they forced their way into my apartment they assaulted me and i didn't know who they were i didn't i didn't know why they were attacking me and so were they police and, officers i'm a little confused um i didn't know at the time okay um they were wearing black that's all i okay. noticed okay um i mean i could get into the descriptions of what the, of who they were i mean there was a short latina there was a giant white guy and there was an even bigger asian guy Mm. and the latina woman tried to scratch out my eye and knocked her arm away and then she did it again and she hit my neck and scratched my neck and one of the the big white guy had pepper sprayed me um eyes and chest and suddenly as i'm standing there my vision like my seeing what i'm seeing goes bright and angular is how i describe it everything Mm -hmm became very sharp and there were like pinpoints of light and i got scared that they were there to murder me yeah. so i decided to run outside and the latina tried to, to stop me and i just put my hands up and put she put her hands up and i just walked us outside and i tripped over my my floor lamp so i kicked it out of my way uh-huh. um that was assault with deadly weapon later because um, oh, I tripped over my lamp. And when I was outside, I felt safe that they weren't going to murder me in full view of my, my neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them put me in a sleeper hold and I woke up in handcuffs. And were you still butt naked at this point? I sure was. Nice. Okay. Just, I had to yeah. clarify that detail for the listeners. <laughs> so I'm butt naked on my doorstep, laying on the, on the ground in handcuffs be, with handcuffs behind me. Uh-huh. Um, a paramedic comes, puts a pair of jeans on me, wraps my jacket around my shoulders, and, and walks me downstairs to one of those red fire fire ambulances. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I get inside and he takes me to San Francisco General Hospital um, in four point restraints. Okay. So I'm 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 handcuffed to the gurney, wrists and ankles. Yeah. And they roll me in and take me into a little room and they guard me. There's a, a guard there who starts messing with me, trying to get a, a violent reaction, trying to, to provoke me into into rage. Hmm. Um, he looked like an ex-lover, so that was really disconcerting. Yeah, that's that sounds incredibly challenging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he taunted me and told me they were going to take take me across the street and ha- give me an autopsy and all kinds of nonsense. And I wouldn't take the bait. Yeah. And finally, they rolled me upstairs, unhandcuffed me because the gurney wouldn't get through the door at the psychic unit. Yeah. Um, the head nurse came out and said, "Okay, Peter." which was the name I'd taken. Um, okay, Peter, no fighting while you're here, all right? No fighting. I'm like, okay. So I, they locked me in a room, and I was still hot, so I took my clothes off. Yeah. And the nurse, Jacob, walks walks someone by, and he's like, Peter, put your clothes on, Peter. Yeah. So I put the I put the hospital gown on. I laid down, and days, days passed before I woke up. Wow. Um. I'd gone in on um, Sunday morning, probably about 9 a.m., and there was a lunch tray next to me the next day. Mm-hmm. So whatever, they, they gave me something, and it just knocked me out. Yeah, they probably sedated you with something. So I guess if we could pause at this point of the story, um, okay. you know, I want to hear about, obviously, uh, what the psych ward experience was like, because I like talking a lot about psych wards, and, <laughs> you know, I I want to... You know, obviously, because I am going to be a psychiatrist one day, um, I want to do my best to improve the psych ward experience. But really what I want to hear a lot about is what that was like getting you into treatment and essentially that you were forced into treatment. You know, I it's hard for me to sometimes relate because I voluntarily entered the psych ward. My experience was very, very different. And a few episodes prior... Um, I had on this guy who I think you'd really like, Rudy Caceres. He's a mental health advocate, uh, very popular on you know Facebook, and he actually was the motivation for me to start my own podcast, one of my in- inspirations, because uh, I went on his show. It was awesome. But he's a strong advocate against forced psychiatric care, and he thinks it really never has a place because it does it causes so much trauma, and it can just be horrific. Um, I don't know if I have as extreme of that view. I do think it maybe has its place in some respects. Um, but certainly if it could be a little bit more humane of a, of a experience for the patient, I am all for that. So I guess like, what, what do you think of forced psychiatric care? Like, are you, were you happy at the end of the day? Maybe like in retrospect that you at least got in to, to treatment, even though it wasn't obviously a very enjoyable experience, or I guess just like, what do you think about all this? Well, I had sought voluntary treatments uh, starting when I was 19. Mm-hmm. I didn't get appropriate treatment until I was 32. And it was and that was, this experience? I or? was seeking treatment. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was 32 when they when they brought me in in handcuffs. Mm-hmm. So voluntary treatment didn't work for me because they I couldn't get the treatment I needed. Mm. It was an access issue mm-hmm. as much as anything. Um, they had... To give to give the system a little bit of credit, San Francisco had a psychiatric um, program called Access that would provide medication to low-income folks, and I qualified. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a doctor who put me on some medication and I got better for a while. And then she retired and I got a new doctor who was a child psychiatrist who didn't really know what, what he was doing with adults. Mm. And he, he made a joke during my first session with him. He made a joke like, you don't hear voices, do you? Ha ha ha. And I was like, no, ha ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) What a dumbass. I know. exactly. (laughs) He took me off the medication that was working for me, that was treating my psychosis. And my symptoms got a lot worse. Um, he put me on Wellbutrin. He took okay. me off the antipsychotic and put me on Wellbutrin, and the Wellbutrin put me over the edge. Mm. Basically, it, it activated my psychosis. Yeah. So it's it's a great treatment for for refractory depression, but I needed a mood stabilizer to keep it from from boosting my, me into a mania. Yeah. And I didn't have that, so that's why I wound up in handcuffs. Was that doctor's incompetence? Yeah, up certainly. until that point, I had managed my illness tolerably well. Yeah, yeah, you weren't you know? getting naked, knocking on people's doors. No, no, yeah. that was a, that was a new a new wrinkle. Yeah. Um, well, so I guess it, it it sounds like you have a somewhat positive ish view on being forcefully admitted to the hospital because at least it got you the care you needed. I needed care, and I couldn't get it through voluntary services. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in, in the hospital, um, at one point they moved me around a lot, but I wound up, um, I wound up in, in the jail in San Francisco County jail charged with assaulting three police officers and misdemeanor assault on the woman who had pushed. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking at seven years in prison. Holy crap. For, yeah. For what had happened mm-hmm. while I was psychotic. Um, but, uh, a, a, the jail psychiatrist came and. I said, what is wrong with me? And he told me I had bipolar. And it was the first time anyone had used those terms. I had no idea what my diagnosis was. I had no idea what I was struggling with. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was in custody that anyone bothered to tell me what was going on. And once I had a label, I thought, oh, my God. we Now I know what I'm working with. I can I can deal with this. You know, There's a treatment course. There's people who know what they're doing. It wasn't until I had a handle on it that I could really do anything more than cope with the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So, forced treatment got me the it got me the diagnosis I needed so I could move forward with my life. It it was kind of an initiation. Yeah, it was a hell of a it was a hell of a process. But up until that point, seeking treatment voluntarily, I hadn't gotten the diagnosis and I hadn't gotten the treatment I needed. So how could that process of being forcefully admitted been improved from what you experienced? Well, not dealing with psychotic, you know, not dealing with sadistic cops would have been an improvement. Yeah, yeah, certainly. You know. Yeah. Um So there was a sadistic cop, there was a a doctor or some kind of medical professional who was very angry to have to deal with a psychotic patient on mm-hmm. the emergency in the emergency room. And yeah. I, I saw her, her attitude and I said, you, you don't have my permission to treat me, which infuriated her. But mm-hmm. I stopped, you know, I evoked my rights and she didn't touch me. I didn't want her to, I mm-hmm. thought she was going to hurt me. Um, so basically I know, I mean, when I'm laying there on the gurney and for four-point restraints, they, they did a blood test to make sure I wasn't on drugs. Yeah. 
and that took pretty much all day. Really? Um, huh. Yeah. So streamlining the, the medical evaluation would be a, a help. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I understand that the methamphetamines can, can trigger psychosis. Yeah. Yeah. So, we actually just got tested on, uh, I had a test yesterday, I, and like PCP, I'm sure, too, can cause like hallucinations oh, yeah. and all that mm-hmm. kind of kind of, they So they definitely had to rule that out. Um, yeah. what, what was it? So how long, I guess, were you in restraints before they kind of essentially probably sedated you with something and knocked you out for like 14 hours? Um, understandably, the time was a little flexible. Mm-hmm. For me in that psychotic state, um, I was brought in about 8.30 in the morning, and um, I wasn't taken upstairs until dinner time. So mm. I was basically in, in four-point restraints all day. Yeah. Not I wasn't, It didn't cross my mind to use a restroom because I was so dehydrated. Wow. Um, St. Joan, the nurse, you know, hooked me up to an IV and, and started replenishing my fluids, but I didn't. I was not given the option or no one, no one, no one asked me if I needed to use the restroom. Yeah. Um, and I was off a busy hallway. So that was kind of distracting, but people came in who like this one officer came in he had a brush mustache and he, he did this gesture, you know, brushing his mustache that a friend of mine from childhood had done, um, it was a group of us kids. It was my brothers and him and his sister. And my mom thought she w- he was making fun of her. So she made a big deal out of this gesture. So mm-hmm. when, this, when this police sergeant did it, I thought, oh, my God, I'm surrounded by friends. you know. Yeah. And this other guy popped his head in and kind of laughed. And he looked like my friend Punk Rock John, who I used to hang out and do coffee with. So I felt like I had support in that setting, that, that I had allies who were there to protect me. Okay. You know, from the from the sadistic cop, from the sadistic nurse, you know. Um, so if someone had reassured me that I was safe, given me some some um, just some some, some assurance that I was going to be okay, mm-hmm. that they were going to take care of me, that they were going you know, some encouragement, because I was terrified and I didn't know what was happening, and the cops were scary. Um, and it was an all-day affair. So. Yeah. Well, so and I the guess cops the... weren't really allowed to talk to me. Oh, <laughs> okay. So I guess what was then on the other side of that? Like, what was your experience? Like, how long were you kind of in the the psych ward then? Once you finally did get upstairs, because I've talked a decent amount on this podcast about my psych ward experience, and you know, it just it I describe it as very bittersweet. Like, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I was there. I learned some great things, but I also hated my time there kind of thing all right so i was in an alternate reality Mm -hmm. um i was really psychotic and everyone was really nice the nurses were really nice to me the other patients were really nice to me um the food was good um the head nurse was really talented i you know i hadn't been eating for days and days and days Mm-hmm. And he brought in some protein shakes, and he made a game of it, like to see how fast we could drink them. Okay, nice. You know, so I'm competing against another another patient to drink mine as fast as I could, and then I I had another one, and it was a way to restore some of the nutrition I missed. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it was a head game, but it, it was it was positive. 
I had a positive experience except for this one nurse who scared me. Um, I had taken my mom's maiden name. Okay. Um, so when the, when the when the three officers were at my door, they said, "What's your name?" And I picked a name out of the air, Peter, uh, because Petros means rock in mm. Greek. Mm-hmm. Upon this rock, I will build my church. So I, I picked Peter, and then I took my mom's maiden name, which is Ruvalot. Well, the French pronunciation of Ruvalot is Ruvalet. The T is silent. So this nurse approached me and said, it's, it's time for your, med- your medication, Mr. Ruvalet. And I, I freaked out. I'm like, how does she know how to pronounce my name? She's going she's gonna to hurt me. She's going to put me into a diabetic coma. And I went down this whole rabbit trail of, of paranoia and psychosis. Mm-hmm. And I refused my, to take the meds she was offering. I said, I'm, she said, you, you're refusing your meds? I said, I'm refusing them from you. Mm. And that was pretense for, enough for them to move me to, to the county jail. Oh, wow. And they put me in general population. Jeez. Yeah, there was no, there was no consultation on my part. They didn't say, if you don't take your meds, we're going to move you to the jail. Yeah. They just moved me. Um, and I was in, I was in county, I was in general population for a day. Um, and the guys there were all really nice. They were all just kind of killing time until they, they served their, their time Mm -hmm. and then they'd get out. They weren't, they weren't gonna, they weren't fighting. They were, they were all really nice. And I was kind of in the space where I was like a holy man. So people were coming up to me and praying to me. It was very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) But there was one guy in there for sex offense and he kept fucking with me. Mm. Um, and when I was that night, when he, when I was laying down, he kept sitting up to see if I'd fallen asleep because he wanted to mess with me in my sleep. And so I pretended to be asleep and he came over to touch me and I freaked out and yelled and the officer came and moved me into a different cell. Wow. Um, and then in the morning I, I felt kind of freaked out and sad. So I started singing to comfort myself. And it was this great echo in the cell. Cause I was all alone. It was a, mm-hmm. a different cell. And cause I was, cause I was singing to myself and kind of annoying everybody. They moved me into what they call a safety cell, which is isolation. Oh geez. Um, okay. So there was a metal floor with a metal platform. It was really cold. And I was there for more than 24 hours. Um, they brought me food, but I wouldn't eat it because I was certain they were feeding me human flesh. Okay. So I was, I was fasting. I wouldn't touch their food. Um, and that night, I was freezing, and I asked the officer for more clothes, and he said, give me your sweatshirt, and I'll give you this vest. And it was this weird kind of, um, like, safety vest with Velcro straps, and I didn't know how to put it on. Mm. So he showed me, and I put it on, and I spent the night freezing, and I thought that I'd been assaulted by a different, I mean, there was a whole journey in the, in the jail, but... I felt I'd been assaulted and, and contracted HIV and that they were putting me in this freezing cold cell to, to trigger AIDS and that I was going to die, that this was all an elaborate, elaborate plot to kill me. Yeah. So they moved me, um, let's see, from there, a, a social worker came and, and asked me what day it was. I had no idea what day yeah. it was. So I, I said Wednesday, you know, it's halfway through the week and she said, you're close. And she wrote loses time on, on the sheet. And she made sure I saw the sheet that she'd written on. I asked her how long I'd be there in the safety cell and she said, we'll see. So they finally came and moved me back to the hospital and 
um, a doctor came and, and told me that they wanted to put me on medication. And he had two assistants with him. And I had this magic phrase that I was using. Um, I used it in the hospital when I, f I was first brought in. And then I used it with him. I said, can you verify that I need this medication? And he paused and he thought about it. And he said, yes. I said, okay. Yeah. And it, the, the visible relief on his face and the two, the two women with him told me that these people cared about me and they mm -hmm. wanted me, what was best for me. I mean, he had described the medication as provided kind of a, a psychic shield against what I was experiencing. Do you remember what the med was? Uh, I believe it was Risperdal. Okay. Because um, they put me on lithium when I first came into the hospital, and that was the, the med I refused. Oh, okay. So when I when on the, the second pass, they put me on Risperdal, I think. Um, and then so is that when your kind of improvement and in, in management really started to blossom is once they finally yeah. did put you on this pill and and how much longer mm -hmm. were you in the hospital? Um I was in the hospital a few days and then they moved me back to jail. Oh jeez. Yeah. yeah. So and they have a whole psych unit on in the jail. Um, yeah. CDEC. Um and there's a there's a control center that the 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 officers use that looks like a wasp nest in the center of the room. Yeah. And then there's, there's cells that surround it with glass walls. Um, and I was there, I was there from, you know, being, being taken to the hospital in handcuffs to release. I was in the system for nine weeks. Oh, wow. Damn. Most of that was in the jail setting. So yeah. seven, seven or eight weeks in the jail. And were they able to prosecute, you know, those charges in like the psychiatric courts? Yeah, I went to mental health court. Okay. Um, I had a public defender, and when she came in, and I met with her in the the area where they have the phones, with the visiting area. I finally I asked her, "What am I being charged with? I've been in the system for weeks, and no one had told me what the charges were." And so she told me, and she showed me a binder um, of the police officers that had arrested me. And they had contusions all over their faces, and I said, I didn't do that. And I told her what had happened about them assaulting me and putting me in a sleeper hold. And she said, okay, I, I get, I, you know, we, I've, I've dealt with these cops before. They're dirty. So I um, went through the mental health court process. Um, I was in jail for so long because they couldn't place me anywhere. There were no beds for me anywhere in any kind of transitional program. Mm -hmm. So finally they released me to my mom's custody and I slept on her floor for a couple of weeks until I was able to get an apartment. Um, actually I was with her for some period of time. I don't remember. It's all kind of a blur. Yeah. A couple months maybe. Um, I was required to go to um, supervised pretrial release classes uh, three times a week. Um, three times or four times i think it was four times a week uh, my mom was in she lived in um point richmond and the classes were in san francisco so i was trying to use public transportation to get there it was kind of really hard yeah because the, the transportation system there is, is disconnected. Awful. yeah yeah so the classes were on things like nutrition there was a drumming class there was um 
there was a drug education class. Um, there was a man in, in the drug education class who talked about how he had done some math at a concert and it, it induced permanent psychosis. Yeah. It's the first time he'd taken it and it destroyed him. Wow. Because it was, it was bad math. Mm-hmm. It induced permanent psychosis. He was permanently messed up by one dose of meth. Yeah. Um, it was awful. Um, so doing the, the classes for a while, I asked my, my probation officer basically if I could go back to work. Well, first I, I, I got in, I asked if I could get my own place and they were like, okay. So I got an apartment on 26 in Valencia in San Francisco. Okay. And then I'm doing these classes and they, they were lame, you know, they weren't helping me any. Yeah. Um, so I asked if I could go back to work and they were surprised. They expected me to apply for social security and, and to, to stop working entirely. Yeah. They had very low expectations. So I went back to work and my employer was thrilled to see me. I'd been off of work for four months and they held my job. Wow. Which was remarkable. Yeah. So I went back to work and a couple of people, you know, secretly, you know, covertly told me I was, they were glad to have me back. Yeah. And I was stabilized by then on the Risperdal and on an antidepressant. And I may have been on an anti-anxiety. I'm not sure. Um, so now from a I, social standpoint, though, your coworkers who, you know, it sounds like you at least had good relationships with, you were, you know, friends with them, maybe just coworkers, whatever. But at that stage, were you like, uh, I just had a psychotic breakdown? Or did you tell them, like, a family emergency the past few months? Yeah, nothing? I told them nothing. They, they, they assumed I'd made a suicide attempt. Okay. Damn. Well, so once you got back though into the work setting and it sounded like you knew you were you, you were on some medication, were you also seeing a therapist in addition to those classes? I was required as a as a condition of my release to see a therapist for okay. a number of sessions. And he he hated me. Ugh. I was I was court ordered and he resented me. Okay. Um so it was very productive. I could tell him anything, and I, I wasn't going to lower his opinion of me any further. Yeah, yeah. So I had like eight sessions with him, and then I was I, I was cleared of that requirement. I went to mental health court every two weeks um, and did what they told me, and they released me from the program. They dropped my charges and expunged my record after four months, Wow, which is a remarkable period of time. Yeah. Usually it it can take a year or more to clear mental health court. Yeah. But I, did, I did everything they, they asked of me. Um, my supervised pretrial release officer, um, he told me to call in twice a week. And every time I called, he was angry. But I kept calling because that's what he told me to do. Mm-hmm. He was trying to discourage me from, from calling because that was, a, you know, to test me, to make sure, you know, to see if I'd actually follow through on the commitment. And I did. And they released me. And because they expunged my record, I was able to go and have a career and work in work in the mental health field. If they if I had those charges on my record, I wouldn't have been able to get a job. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. Well, um, at least you had a really positive experience, you know, dealing with kind of the charges in a sense where at least it was only four, Mm. four months. You know, it could have been significantly significantly worse so i guess when where and how did this story 
twist to the point where I guess me and you then started to cross paths because when I met you, I believe you were working at Placer County Mental Health, Mental yeah. Health America, correct? So like, how um, did you start working in the mental health system? How did you start to quote unquote feel in recovery kind of thing? So when did this story start to really turn positive? All right. So after, after being back at work for about a year, I, was super embarrassed about how I behaved as I was getting psychotic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I left town. I moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico. I left the state. I was so embarrassed. Wow. Um, and I was there in Albuquerque for three years, and I was really isolated. And I was started manifesting symptoms, and I was I was temping, and I lost my job. And because of my decompensation, or whatever you want to call it, I couldn't get another I couldn't get any more work to that temp agency. They wouldn't mm-hmm. hire me. I got a really better view from a from a supervisor at Intel. So oh, okay. out of money, out of work, out of luck. Um, basically, I moved back to California homeless. Um, my mom let me the money to move back. I got into an apartment briefly for two months. I I could pay first and last. And then yeah. I couldn't support myself because I was too symptomatic. Mm-hmm. So I moved. I moved to to Roseville where my mom was staying, onto her floor again, and um, got into the public mental health system. Um, I in in Placer County. I started seeing a doctor through Placer County. I was on Medi-Cal, um, and moved in with some friends and was couch surfing for about eight months. Um, there were some shady characters. Yeah. But, um, that's another podcast in itself. We'll just have to go over the, the, the couch surfing journey of Will Taylor. Yeah. So Placer County put me on, on meds and, um, they also applied for social security for me because I wasn't able to work. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a walking zombie. The med, I was on Seroquel and it was, um, the, the side effects were too much for me. It wasn't a good fit. I can think um, I was sedated. I was a walking zombie. Yeah. Um, so I worked with the doctor, advocated for myself, peeled away the meds I didn't need, peeled away the meds that the side effects were incapacitating me, and got on a program of medication that worked for me. Um, and three months after I, I applied for Social Security, I was awarded it. That's how impaired I was. Yeah. So with the Social Security money, I was able to afford an apartment in Roseville. Um, in this ghetto area, ro- you know, roach-infested building, all that stuff. Wow. Surround, you know, in the neighborhood with, you know, there was a meth lab in my building oh, that geez. exploded while I was living there. Jeez. Um, so did that, and I was bored and depressed and wanted to go back to work. So Placer County Mental Health had a, a program for employing consumers, mental health consumers. Um, and I fought for that job for nine months, plaguing the supervisor of the job, you know, of the employment program until I actually got an interview. Mm-hmm. And they hired me as a peer provider. Um, and I was tasked with opening a, a, a drop-in center for clients with the public mental health system. So I did. I studied um, I studied different models of, of drop-in centers and settled on a clubhouse model. And myself and my coworker, also a care provider, 
organized it, um, advocated with our supervisor on getting furniture. We converted an old gymnasium at the at the hospital to um, to this drop-in center. We got couches, we got um, portable walls to, to separate areas so people could have some privacy to hang out. Mm. Um, so I worked at the clubhouse for two years, and then I, I was um, a job came open through Mental Health America of Northern California at the management level representing the consumer interests. You know, being the, the voice of individuals with mental illness at the management level, the supervisors and seniors of the public mental health system. And I applied for that job and I got it. So I, I attended the organizational leadership meetings with the managers and supervisors of Placer County's public mental health system. I attended a lot of high level um, meetings like Cultural Linguistics Competency Committee, Workforce Education and Training, um, sort of policy, I was working at the policy level Mm-hmm. As well as a program level, creating programs like the Speakers Bureau. Yeah, which is which is when I met you. Yeah, I was I was getting the peer support through the Balance um, Group, and I invited you to join my Speakers Bureau. And I and, do you remember I was actually uh, I remember and I told this story kind of I I had uh, David Bartley on a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and so we were talking about this. I was extremely hesitant to join the Speakers Bureau at first. And I kept being like, I'll, I'll do it when I have a better job, when I have more money, when, I don't know, I have a wife or something. Like I remember kept pushing it off. And really the catalyst for me was, sadly enough, the Sandy Hook shooting. And that's really when I was like, okay, like I want to be part of Will's team of trying to uh, tell positive stories of mental illness rather than purely hearing the negative ones. So, yeah, well, thanks again, man, for training me, though, to become a a public speaker, because prior to that experience, I didn't really do any public speaking. I didn't really like it so much, but I remember just really enjoying um, speaking in front of crowds, and I remember how you taught me, like, one of the best things you taught me was they're not really going to remember what you say. They're going to remember like how you act and how you hold yourself and your character. And so I remember you encouraged all of us to not read off of our cards, uh, off of our story. Um, you know, like tr- how do, how do we tell our story in a dynamic fashion? Like when I remember you would describe, like when I talk about the suicide and the depression, you know, like, take pauses and pauses are really powerful way to deliver a story. Um, and yeah, it just, you, you, I feel like really kind of were the catalyst towards me making that weird shift from being an insurance underwriter, which I hated with every part of my body to, you you know, eventually, uh, I'm in medical school now and, and on this journey of being a mental health provider one day. Um, so yeah, man, thanks again for, for kind of coaching me through that crazy process. Cause I never would have imagined I would have been a mental health public speaker. Um, but it was, it was awesome, man. And you got me in front of some cool crowds too. You were like my agent, my booking agent. (laughs) It's fun. I'm glad. I'm glad you got a lot out of it. No, absolutely, man. And look, you kind of started uh, David's kind of career too. He's sort of he's doing like public speaking full time now. Yeah. You know, man. You that were. Was his goal. Yeah, it was. It was really you started something. Something really fantastic. So, are you still involved at all with the speakers bureau, or like, what are you doing these days? 
Um, I'm not involved with the Speakers Bureau, but I'm thinking about joining again. Okay. Um, the the woman one of I I had a relapse of my illness and had to had to leave that job. Oh, okay. And um, it took a it took a little while to find my feet. Um, I wound up working for a cross disability organization called Placer Independent Resource Services. It's um, part of a system of independent living centers that serves people with disabilities. And the focus of the organization I work for is to keep people, to help people with, to help people with disabilities live independently in the community. Mm -hmm. We provide different supports, whether it's goal setting or uh, resources to help them with assistive technology, um, things like minor home modification to install grab bars and, and threshold ramps and that kind of thing. Um, and my job is advocacy. So my job is really to change the world, to make it more equitable and accessible for people with disabilities of all kinds. Mm -hmm. So I've moved out of solely mental health advocacy into a cross-disability setting. Okay. And do you like one more than the other? <sighs> my heart's in mental health. It really okay. is. Okay. You know. Well, cool. So do you think you might make a transition eventually at some point back to more just a mental health focused kind of gig? I'd like to. Um, it's it's tough work, though. Yeah. Because when, when a person, when an individual with mental illness is working in the field, it can be triggering. It can also, um, it can also feel limiting because mm -hmm. you're, um, you're identifying as having a mental illness and working in the field. And that reinforces that that's, the the only factor of your identity that's important yeah so so it's it's having balance and interest outside of outside of the work the mental health work is really important yeah and I, i'm glad you brought that up because i remember when i first actually started joining uh your speakers bureau um in many ways it was kind of like a a period of hypomania for me where i i was just so motivated to to change mental health stigma and perception because I was so frustrated by the Sandy Hook shooting and all the negativity that went with that. But I remember it really did consume everything I started to think about. And I was just so obsessed with mental health and then I would go to a lot of these meetings and I would hear these heart-wrenching stories and I, I would just hold on to them. And, you know, it was, it was all I would think about kind of thing. And even now as a medical student, I feel like so much of my life is medicine, trying to memorize all these damn facts to eventually understand the brain and emotions. And so I always have to remind myself to like take time away from just that. Like I can't be Logan Noon, just bipolar, everything. It's like, I want to be a husband. I want to be a golfer, a skier. Like I have to still develop other aspects of my life to have that proper mm -hmm. balance. Absolutely. Yeah. Because our identities can't be limited by a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. You know, we're more than we're more than an illness. We're a lot more. And working in the field, it can feel like that's it. That's all we are. Yeah. Well, so now if I could ask you, you are, uh, I guess I did. I do you know why I have a mustache right now? No. Oh my God! It's Movember, so you are one of my my guests for the Movember themed month, and so I have this beautiful lip sweater because it's uh, Movember themed month, and we're trying to raise awareness for prostate cancer, uh, testicular cancer, and men's mental health, and how m men's mental health 
just presents itself in different challenges than compared to maybe women's mental health. You know, men are much more likely to actually succeed if they do try to commit suicide Um, and uh, more likely like to be victims of substance abuse and kind of maybe manifest themselves or numb out their symptoms with substances. So what do you think are some of the differences between a man's mental health challenge versus a female's mental health challenge? Wow, what a question. Um, Stereotypically, I mean, in our society, men are supposed to uphold a certain standard of independence and strength. And we may have this internalized attitude that we can't be weak, that mental illness is a form of weakness. And so you just kind of bear up, you suck it up, you man up. You don't let these things hold you back, and you certainly don't admit to them admit them to other people because they'll think you're weak and take advantage of you and undermine you. It can be a liability in your in your work or your career mm-hmm. if you identify as having a mental illness. Um, so there's a lot of internalized stigma around it, and there's a lot of social stigma that if you have a mental health diagnosis and you're a man, you're weak, and that you, you can be discounted or ignored or yeah. ridiculed. Yeah, certainly. And then also what you know, I, I I don't have a lot of friends who are homosexual. Um, and so I, I really want to try to learn more about the experience of, of going through something like that because I know people who are homosexual or bisexual, you know, just maybe not typical, whatever, um, are more likely to deal with mental health challenges. So what would you, like, what do you think are some of the mental health challenges of, of, being homosexual and like that coming out experience and like how can me as a provider one day and also a heterosexual person better connect and better motivate someone um, who's going through something like that to just seek out help when necessary? Um, Well, there's still a lot of societal stigma. Um, It's a hell of a lot better than it used to be. I was driving down the freeway and there's a billboard for Kaiser and it shows two men walking walking hand in hand it says thrive your way that's pretty cool yeah and it kind of blows me away we went from you know 80s teen teen movies where they're they're calling each other faggots to billboards you know celebrating gay love Mm -hmm. there's been a sea change over the course of the last 20 years in how society views homosexuality and how society integrates us but there's still, I mean, there's still places that if you if you look gay, they're gonna spit in your food. Mm-hmm. They're gonna um, follow you home from the bar and beat your ass or kill you. And I'm talking Sacramento. This is a this is an urban city. Um, you know, it's homosexuality is still limited. Acceptance is still limited to, to, to pockets of yeah. urban areas, and sometimes only pockets of the cities are safe for people who are queer. Um, so as a provider, you know, put up a rainbow sticker, let them know you can talk to them and they can talk to you about their concerns. Um, externalized stigma can be fatal, mm-hmm. you know, internalized stigma can be fatal as well. If you hate yourself for being queer, you may kill yourself. Yeah. And, you know, and, normalizing the queer experience and 
giving people examples of, you know, queer heroes in, in, in history um, can help. Contextualizing that gay love is, has always been here from mm-hmm. archaic days forward. Um, but a lot of the mental health challenges that, that queer people experience are because of social stigma. The depression, yeah. the anxiety, these are reactions. They're not endemic to the, to the queer ex- experience. They're, they're situational. Yeah. So understanding that the situational context can be changed. Um, I was living up until a couple months ago, I was living in a very rural environment in a small mountain, former gold mining town. Yeah. And, it was and I actually home. love that town. It's a gorgeous area. It's a gorgeous area. And yeah. It's really homophobic. Is it? I was, well, um, I'm not. I guess I'm not surprised. I imagine it's just very conservative up there. It's Trump it country, is. I imagine. It sure is. Yeah. They actually want to break off the state into a second state, a rural state that isn't, you know, isn't beholden to the coastal elite. Yeah. You know, of liberals. Well, that's they what wanna... I. Th- I feel like people don't understand about California. Like, when I would tell them I was living in California, they'd be like, oh, yeah, like, it must be liberal hippie land. I'm like, parts? Yes, like, the city. But And I was like, it's only because most of the people live in the city, so everyone thinks of it as this blue state. But when you get outside of it into the rural areas, it is a totally different environment. There's, you know, it's just night and day, kind of. And even now, like, I live up in Washington, and it's the same kind of thing, like Seattle, you know, Hippieville, whatever. But I live through two and a half, three hours outside of Seattle, east, inland. Um Totally night and day. I, we see, like, Confederate flags on trucks yeah. all the time, and there's, like, Civil War reenactments. It's like, what the fuck? You know, it's it's very, very strange. But I'm sorry. I, I interrupted. <laughs> Where was I? Well, I one other thing that I don't know much about is, so now just dealing with the, the homosexual population or even bisexual, whatever, um... Is a man's homosexual experience versus a woman's homosexual experience, um, are there different mental health challenges that come with the gender? I can't speak for women. Okay. Um, I mean, we're gonna you're going to see the same prevalence throughout the population that you see in the general population. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one out of one out of every four or five people is going to have a mental health diagnosis or a mental health challenge mm-hmm. over the course of their lifespan. Um, men are more visible. Um, gay men are more visible, so we're in more danger. And being queer, a queer man, um, kind of it. It's more despised because we live in a patriarchal society, mm-hmm. and um, there's a there's a, sexism is involved. Basically, if you're a queer man, you're effeminate, um, mm-hmm. and it it strikes at the power structure for a man to give up his privilege and and be be feminine. So they murder us because we undermine the power structure by our existence. Yeah. Yeah. So that visibility and that that danger is is very real. Now, lesbians are eroticized by straight men. 
Yeah. So they're safer. They may be raped, which is a horrific thing. Yeah. But they're less likely to be murdered for being queer. Yeah. No, certainly. And, like, you know, I just think of, you know, I guess how do I, how do I best put that? You know, if you're out at, I remember at a party or something, you know, if, if two women started making out, it would be like how many teenage boys would be around there filming with their phone kind of thing. Just like you're saying, yeah. like they're, they're like, uh, idolized, I guess in a sense, but mm -hmm. if roles were completely reversed, if there was two men making out in the middle of the party, like there would not be that same kind of reaction. Like, so I, I mean, I certainly don't it's know how to, hostile. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like do that in private kind of thing. Like we don't want to see that. And it is just such a different sort of experience. And, you know, I don't know how to, to best help and, and always change, but I definitely want to. I had a couple friends, I had a friend most recently um, who I, I never would have suspected that he was homosexual in a million years. And he came out to me very recently and it was, um, you know, I, I just, it made me very sad because I didn't know if he, he must have been dealing with an internal struggle for many, many, many years. And it made me, though, so happy that at least now he can live a little bit more true to how he's really feeling and, and you know, love someone that he really wants to. So what, go ahead, Will. I was wondering if there's a question there. I don't know. I'm just spewing out random feelings into the internet, Will. This is okay. what we do here on Talk Mental Health <laughs> with Logan Noon. So I guess, you know, we're at a good hour and 15 minutes. This has been a fantastic uh, podcast. So what are, I guess, any last words of advice that you would want to give to, like, I always say, imagine you, imagine Will, 20 years prior, was able to tune into this podcast, or someone who, like, was just like you is listening to this podcast today. What advice do you, would you feel would be most beneficial, you know, in those age, those days when, before you were actually getting treatment, when you were just really having psychosis and you didn't know what the hell was going on? I'd say have hope. It can get better and you can create a better life for yourself. It takes a little bit of work, but you can create a better life for yourself. Um, reach out for help. Tell people you're struggling. Don't be afraid to, to ask for help. Um, but have hope. It can get better. Yeah. You don't have to suffer. It doesn't have to be that hard. You just have to ask for help. Yeah. Your life does not have to be that hard. Well, and one one topic I really like that you were talking about earlier is kind of like, and I think it had to kind of do with your the homosexual experience. It's like it it is situational, you know. Like if if you if you are in a bad situation, at the end of the day, it is possible to change your situation into a better environment. And maybe that's something you experienced moving from that kind of rural community to now you live in downtown Sacramento, which I always felt was had a very friendly uh, homosexual um, community. Um, general, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, my wife and I, one of our favorite places to hang out with is actually the gay district of Sacramento. They had yeah. great restaurants, really cool coffee shops. Um, it was just fun. There was a whiskey bar there that I remember. I absolutely just loved on J street, 18th and J, I think it was, but, um, okay. well, yeah, man, thanks again for coming on the show. This was awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope you're open to coming on again in the future. Just think, well, if it wasn't for you training me how to be a mental health speaker, I would have never made a podcast. So this is your fault. <laughs> 
I, I fully accept responsibility. Well, hell yeah, man. I'm glad you're in medical school. And that is a wrap on episode 28. Thank you so much for tuning in, and be sure to tune in next week for Talk Mental Health with Logan Noon. The I haven't really woken up oh, until I've had my McDonald's breakfast deal. And I know this is true because before breakfast, I put my phone in the refrigerator and couldn't find the keys that were already in my hand. Nothing gets the morning going like the first sip of an iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. McDonald's. I'm loving it.